Good morning, and greetings in Jesus' name, and welcome to our service. I, too, want to invite our visitors to worship with us. It's good to have you here for whatever reason. Good to have Darren and Beth here this morning. Welcome. Turning now to the message of the morning. I'm not quite sure how people arrive at the topics they're going to teach and preach about whenever they have that to do so. For me, it can be somewhat of a dilemma sometimes to decide what uh, what to speak about. But sometimes uh, circumstances are such that you um, you are forced to think about a thing or a subject. And uh, I guess whenever I I have that happen to me, and I and I have to and I have to think through a thing, and uh, and and I have to do some research on it and figure out where I am on a thing. Then it's pretty easy for me to turn that into a message and uh, help you to understand why I feel the way I do and why I think you should feel the same way. All right. So that's what's happening this morning. And probably for the next several uh, Sundays that, that I preach, uh, we'll be at least looking at this topic at least this morning and maybe a morning or two after this. And I've simply entitled this series, uh, the, the Divorce Dilemma. And you might say, well, why in the world would I stand up here and wax eloquent for two or three Sunday mornings on something that's not even an issue in our church? And perhaps that's why I should. That that whole thing of divorce and remarriage, to just package it in the, the terms we usually talk about it in, has been so settled among us that I wonder sometimes if we know why we are so settled on it. Have we have we do we understand why we 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 have arrived at such a firm position on that? Do we likewise understand that for every preacher that would stand up here and talk about it in the terms that I will talk about it today, you could probably find 10,000 that would say something quite the opposite. The, the, the stance that we as a conservative Mennonite church, and to broaden that out, the, the more broader conservative Anabaptist church would take on the subject is, um, is so narrow and and, and some people would say, so um, no, there's like no grace given, all right, that it's, it can't be really the way God would expect things to be. Surely there's some grace that can be worked into this thing. Surely we take too narrow of a position. So the question is, is that true? Do we? Are we biblical in the, in the position we take on this? I read uh, briefly through our statement of faith that uh, that we have, and um, I'll, I'm not going to read it here this morning, but just real quickly, it says that we should marry only in the Lord. I'm reading now out of out of our out of our statement. It says it should be permanent for life, no matter the circumstance, and to marry another person while the other partner is still living, regardless of the circumstance or situation. Is um, is something we won't practice here, and that's just kind of putting it in a nutshell. There's a few other things it says there, but that's pretty much what it says. I also wonder how often you and I uh, contemplate or sit down and think about the untold blessings that we have received or that we enjoy because we come from families 
that are intact, that, that have taken the word of God and how it describes marriage to be, and have lived that way. I, I don't even think I can begin to fathom the, the blessings I have enjoyed because of that. I have, not, I have done nothing to deserve this, and neither have you, if you come from a setting like that. And I will say that by God's grace, I wish to propagate this blessing to my posterity, and I trust the same can be said of you. To name just a few, imagine the insecurity you would have in your life if it were not so, if you did not grow up in an intact home. It's often been said that the best gift that a dad can give their, his children is to love their mother, and I truly, truly believe there's a lot of truth to that. I have an understanding of true love and commitment inside the marital bond that many do not understand, have not experienced. Our understanding of marriage has also given us an understanding or a concept of the importance of keeping of vows. When a person makes a vow, he means that. These things aren't something that can be just willy-nilly broken. Many of us have the um, on our shelves somewhere... Maybe maybe I'm assuming something here, but at least in my home and in the and in, uh, in my house, the home I grew up in and in my house, I have several what you would call genealogy books. All right, and you can take that off the shelf and you can figure out your pedigree and how you're related to this person and the next person. I personally kind of enjoy looking through that, but I can tell you this. For the vast majority of people in this country, that would be nigh an impossibility because the, the, the broken homes, the intermarriage, the lack of marriage, the whole chaos that exists in the world we live in is so utterly despicable that it would be completely impossible to put something like that together. I don't know if that's a blessing, but just think about that. It's something that not very many people can do, really. I also want to say here in the, in the outstart that I realize that I have no idea the heart-wrenching experience that, ex- that, is, that someone must go through when he goes through the curse of divorce. Often there is something of an innocent party where by no choice of their own they find themselves in a situation that is about as heart-wrenching as anything a human can experience. And I'm keenly, keenly aware that I speak from a perspective that I know nothing about that. I know that completely. So what has led me to this topic? I have a friend that, um, not of, not of the, of Mennonite, um, stance or background, but he was in a, he had the unfortunate, the unfortunate experience of his wife leaving him. And from my perspective and the way I understand the situation, he certainly was the innocent party. There's, I don't think that can be disputed. I would agree with that. We had a number of talks about this. Um, this probably happened six, seven years ago. I lose track of time, but something like that. Over the time that was happening, we had a number of talks about this, and, and, the, and the man, um, understandably, was going through some very, very difficult times, uh, almost to a point of depression. And um, he would have made some comments that I would have understood that he would not consider 
remarriage because of, um, of his understanding. That's the way I processed what he was telling me. And I was very, I was pleased with his, his viewpoint and so on. I do remember about two years ago us revisiting this subject just casually. And, um, and I remember some, some conversation about where where God would put him as a person, as an innocent party, in a situation that he found himself. And at that point, I do remember him um, um, somewhat, um, in my mind, the way it felt to me, he had changed his mind a bit, and he was making some room for remarriage. That's, I do remember that. But we left it, um, and to my knowledge, he had never remarried until about a month ago, I was talking to a mutual friend of this man, and... This man began, this friend of ours began to refer to this person in the plural terms. He, he was starting to use words like they and them. And I said, wait a minute. I said, is he married? Uh, yes, he is married. Oh, I had not known that. And so I had a, an opportunity to ask my friend that apparently remarried. I said, so how did, how did this turn out? How did this happen? How long has this been? Well, about two years now. Really? Two years. And I did not know you were remarried. So, so why was that? Well, he said, I knew how you felt about it. And I didn't figure there was any point in bringing it up. Well, I said, true, true enough. That is true. You're, what you have decided to do certainly wouldn't change my mind on the subject. But I said, for full transparency, I think it would have been nice if you'd have told me. And I said, furthermore, if you truly believe that you have entered into this with the blessing of God, it shouldn't matter to you what I believe. Because you have to stand before God someday. You don't answer to me. You answer to God. So we had that conversation. In this whole saga, he sent me a YouTube, whatever, whatever you call it, this a, a YouTube uh, thing about um, and it was it was a it was a preacher of some sort I guess, with a two hour and thirty eight expo- minute exposition on divorce and remarriage. And I looked at that time and I'm like, can I get through two hours and thirty eight minutes of something that I already know I'm not going to agree with? But I thought, well, for for just just because I should, I will. So I listened to it. And it went exactly the way I, I figured it would. I, I did find it interesting to to hear this person's perspective and so on. He also referenced another evangelical preacher that he said, I don't agree with him because he takes too narrow a view. And I'm like, i got to listen to him too. So I listened to him as well. And um, I, I thought I was going to agree with him till he got to a certain point and I couldn't agree with him anymore. Uh, but he was closer. However, the, the first one I listened to, it, when it was all said and done, it was amazing how he could take the Word of God and literally gut it. In my opinion, he, he spent two hours and 38 minutes gutting what the Word of God says. And anybody that listens to that is going to feel pretty good about themselves if they wish to hear what that man had to share. Because it was basically making... A, an excuse to do exactly what the Word of God says you shouldn't. All right? 
Five minutes into that video, I knew why we were not going to agree. I knew it, and I almost shut it off. Because he said, all right, he said, there are people out there, and I, and I knew he was talking about me because I fell into that camp, that make absolutely no leeway at all for divorce and remarriage. None. He said, that's legalistic. It was all over. If, if listening to the Word of God, taking the Word of God as it speaks, in plainness and truth, and calling that legalism, and we're not legalistic after all, it's all over. I, I call that obedience. I call that simple obedience. He's calling it legalism. We are starting at such a polar opposite on this thing, we can't bring the two together. In fact, we'll never even meet at an intersection. Because we, we are starting at two different places, we are heading in two different directions. And that's when I began to realize that the Anabaptist hermeneutic process, and by the way, that big word just simply means a method of interpreting scripture, is simply that we take the word of God, we look at it, and we say, well, that's what it says. So we're just jolly well going to do that. That's, that's the way we, we look at things. And we also take the, the scripture that is the most unambiguous, or in other words, the ones that are the most easily understood on a matter, and we use those to interpret the ones that are the most ambiguous, or the ones that are the least understood on the matter. That's how we interpret it. We don't start over here with the ones that are the hardest to understand, and try to make that fit a narrative that we want it to fit. If you follow me, I stand before you with no doctorate of theology this morning. You know that, and you're good with that. I don't know that I ever have been a part of a church where the preacher uh, had a doctorate of theology. But that's also why this works. We believe, I believe anyway, that I can have any one of you men here this morning come up here and preach this sermon, and you would largely preach the same thing. Because we're simple people, or at least we should be. And we look at the Word of God, and it's very simple. We preach what it says. We, ex we expound, we exposit what it says. And that's not so hard. And this goes back to the beginning of our, of our existence, way back, by when a, name of, a man by the name of Conrad Grebel, when he was writing to his brother-in-law, whose name was Vadian, and I'm just going to quote a little sentence of his letter. Wouldn't you like it if somebody would quote little sentences of your letter 500 years hence when you're writing to your brother-in-law? Well, I'm going to do that. He simply said this, and by the way, Vadian was not of Conrad Grebel's persuasion, and Conrad was trying to help him see why he had arrived at the place that he had. And here's what he said, and I believe it is our manifesto today. I believe the word of God without a complicated interpretation and out of this belief I speak. The teaching of the Lord has been given for the purpose of being put into practice. It doesn't get any more simple than that, and it doesn't get any more easier than that, but there is a cost to it. If you're going to do what the Word of God says, it might come with a cost. When New Testament instruction becomes a mere suggestion that can be taken or left or twisted or interpreted to fit my whims or your whims, the Bible becomes a complete joke. 
which, in my opinion, is why churches in America are basically empty, and the ones that still exist must tickle ears to get people to come back. Back to the man that uh, spoke on two hours and 38 minutes on his understanding. I had to think this when he was all done. If this man sat down and he wrote instructions to an employee, and he simply put down what he expected the employee to do for the day, wrote it in simple language, and he gave it to the employee, and the employee would have taken the liberty with his directions that he took with the directions in the Bible, I would say he probably would be highly displeased. That's my guess. That's a pretty windy introduction. But like I say, I don't expect to get through this sermon today. I don't even, I'm not even going to try. But what we are going to do now at this point is we're going to look at what the scripture says in a fairly detailed way on this matter. And we're going to look at some things that where, where we part ways with uh, the, the, the broader Church of America and the world perhaps. And uh, the next time I, I speak, I would like to look at um, the, the, the contemporary confusion on, on questions that lead people down a path that goes nowhere. It, it just doesn't. All right? We're going to start out with Ephesians 5. This is going to be the... Um, my starting point, because I believe this passage is a big reason we take the standard that we do on this particular matter. Ephesians 5 and verse 21, and we're just going to read the end of the chapter. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with a washing of water by the word. There we have that washing of water, don't we? That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." For this call shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, as we were reading through this, do you almost get confused what Paul's talking about? Is he talking about the church and using... Marriage for an analogy? Or is he talking about the, the, the marriage and kind of likening that to the church? He goes back and forth. He's talking about this and he flips, flip, 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 and you go through and like, oh, what's he talking about here? Well, I'm going to suggest this morning that what he's talking about is he's talking about the relationship of Christ and the church. Okay, that's what it is. And he's using the picture of marriage as an analogy or a, a, a picture 
of, of how that should be. And he says, look at marriage and how that works, and that's how Christ and the church should function. The church is part of the body of Christ, he says in verse 30 and 31, and the two are become one in marriage. Talking about a man and a wife. And then in verse 32, he, he stops for a minute and he says, you know what, it's almost like he gets confused, or, or he realizes that this is, this is almost more than his readers can understand. He said, just remember, this is a great mystery. Not only a mystery, it's a great mystery. And he said, I'm speaking things concerning Christ and the church. So my, my point is this. While it's not specifically stated here, I'm suggesting this morning that probably one of the most fundamental reasons to take the stance that we here as a church do concerning prohibition on remarriage while a former partner still lives is because of what marriage represents. Christ will never abandon his church for another, even at times if the church is unfaithful and to a certain degree will always be imperfect. The church is Christ's bride. Christ is not hunting for another bride. And I suggest this morning that until Jesus abandons his church for another bride, that will be the day that it is okay for you to divorce your wife and find another. Until that day, it is not okay. Because it does such a, a disservice to what marriage represents as a model as an example of Christ and the church. That I think that it's a, it's a crying shame whenever the people of God make room for it. All right, now let's turn back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 2. And you know where we're going here. This is, this is where it begins to speak about um, how things are supposed to go here in the world. The earth is pretty new here yet. And um, we have... We have in Genesis 2.22, we have this very familiar story. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Um, I don't know what a person can add to this. Uh, it's just so clear, and, and there's 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 no ambiguity in the whole in the whole passage. Um, I do find it interesting that um, it says a man a man should leave his father and mother, but Adam didn't have one to leave, you know. But he he got it done anyway. I, just an interesting little side note there. I would ju- I would just like to uh, talk about the word cleave here for a little bit. And this, this illustration you've probably heard before, but it bears repeating. Um, this idea of cleaving would be like if you took two boards and you put glue in there between these two boards and you smacked them together and you just left them there, you put them in a vise and you left them there and you left them two boards glue together. Now, if we're going to rip those two boards apart, I can tell you this, it's going to be a piece of work, number one. And number two, there's going to be shatters, shards, splinters. Those boards are going to come apart so hard, and there's going to be pieces left on either one. And really, the two will never be the same again. It's impossible. And that's a lot the way marriage is. Um, Divorce after marriage leaves a lot of ugliness, 
Uh, I think it's safe to say that. And I will say this, while it's not stated here, that the biggest losers in that whole thing are the children. They are the biggest losers when something like that happens. All right, now let's turn to uh, Deuteronomy 24, if you would. And unfortunately, I forgot to bring my Amplified Bible up. Did you give that to me? I'd like to read this in the uh, in the Amplified. You follow along in your King James there, or whatever version you're hearing this morning. Most of us have the King James, but you listen and see if you can see any subtle differences in the way I read it out of the Amplified and the way it reads in your Bible. And we're going to read the first four verses of chapter 24. All right, here goes in the Amplified. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in the eyes because he found some indecency in her, and he writes her a bill of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and when she departs out of his house, she goes and marries another man. And if the latter husband dislikes her and writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the last husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she is defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring guilt upon the land which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. Okay, so you may or may not have picked up on this, but I would like you to look at verse 1. Because the way verse 1 is written here, and I should find this in my King James so that I can uh, get it right here. Um, there's a there's a subtle difference in the what I read and the way it's written that that kind of changes the whole meaning of the thing. So if you if you notice in the King James it says um, if he does this, he, okay, I'm just going to butt in here because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write. All right. In other words, the way it would read is. If he finds, if he's displeased with his wife because of uncleanness, then he is under an obligation to write her a bill of divorcement and send her away. Then let him write, right? And the Amplifies, it says, and he writes. The way that's written, it sounds like he has this option of writing a bill of divorce, and he may choose to, but he's not under a um, some sort of a mandate to do so. Now, here's where things get fuzzy, and here's where it would be helpful to, um, to know Hebrew, I guess, and to delve into the old, uh, the old books. But I'm going by what people tell me, and I was interested to see that this is the way the Amplified writes it. Um, when you go back into the New Testament, and it says that Moses commanded a, a bill of divorcement, it wasn't necessarily a command. What, what, what Moses here was doing is he was regulating what was happening. He wasn't say do it, but he was regulating what was already happening. And the thrust of this whole passage is, all right, if you're going to divorce your wife and, and this takes place, here's something that can't take place. If she goes to another man and she goes back, and, and for some reason that second marriage either doesn't work out or the man dies, she is not free to go to that first, that first husband. That's really the thrust of this. All right, that's kind of what the regulation is about. But I was interested that apparently if if we could understand this the way it's supposed to be understood, and I 
I hesitate to do that because I feel like I'm, feels like he, it feels like I'm maybe messing with something that I shouldn't be. But perhaps and would be a better word to put in there. All right? Not under obligation, but he chose to do that. I'm also interested that in this particular passage, um, it's only the man that can do this. It doesn't say, well, you know, if the, if the woman is displeased with her husband, that she can do the same thing. It says only the man. And if you will, again, if you'll pay attention through the rest of the readings, that's the way it always reads. It's the man that's instigating the divorce. And I'm just going to suggest, I don't know why that is, but could it be that even in a situation like this, there was some kind of leadership, male leadership, the whole leadership role thing that, that came into play here that only the man could instigate it. Lastly, I want to point out that it says that when she remarries that other man and either that second man divorces her or he dies, it says that her return to the first husband cannot happen because she has been defiled. Did you catch that? There's something about that second marriage that caused her to be defiled. Um, I'm not going to comment any more to that except to say this. Could that be that that particular language of defilement after the second marriage truly shows God's um, attitude toward the matter? That, you know, even though it was tolerated for the hardness of heart, that God still looked at that as defilement to the land. Whatever the case may be, also remember that when it gets to this point of returning to the first husband, God calls it an abomination. That is strong language. That's about as strong a language as you will find in the Bible. When God says something is an abomination, that holds through the Old Testament and into the New. There's nothing in the Old Testament that is called an abomination that the New Testament sanctifies. Okay? That holds through the whole Bible. Okay. Turn with me now to Malachi 2. Malachi is pretty easy to find. You find Matthew and you take a left and there you are. All right. So I'm also going to read this out of the the Amplified because this this also I found helpful to do so. So if I read Malachi, we're going to read uh, verse um, 11 to 15 out of Malachi 2. Judah hath been faithless and dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah, or that is Jewish men, have profaned the holy sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god, having divorced his Jewish wife. The Lord will cast out of the tents of Jacob to the last man those who did this evil thing, the master and the pupil or servant alike, and him who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this you do with double guilt. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears that are shed by your unoffending wives, divorced by you, that you might take heathen wives, and with your own weeping and crying out, because the Lord does not regard your offering any more or accept it with favor at your hand. Yet you say, why does he reject it? Because the Lord has witnessed to the covenant made at your marriage between you and your wife of your youth, 
against whom you have dealt treacherously and to whom you were faithless. Yet she is your companion and the wife of your covenant made by your marriage vows. And did not God make you and your wife one flesh? Did not one make you and preserve your spirit alive? And why did God make the two one? Because he sought an, a godly offspring from your union. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and let no one deal treacherously and be faithless to the wife of his youth. Now, there's a lot of addition here in the Amplified that helps us out to understand exactly the context here that Malachi was um, referring to. But if you kind of take it as a summary, God was upset that these people were so took their marriage covenant so lightly. And they would literally divorce the wives of their youth, as he calls it, for godless women, just because it feels like that's what they wanted to do. It was just not really even a good reason, just that's what they wanted to do. I also find it interesting that he specifically says here that the reason you shouldn't do that is for the sake of your children. He said, I seek a godly seed. And again, I want to emphasize that to raise godly seed, if you will, or godly children in the in the um, context of a situation like this is very, very difficult, very difficult, confusing and difficult. And then verse 16, it says very clearly, the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. He hates divorce. So no matter what the deal was back in, in Deuteronomy 24, where we had some of this goings-on, I think God's heart is clearly stated here. He hates divorce. He absolutely has very little time for it. Let's turn now to Matthew 5. This is very recognizable as the Sermon on the Mount. And um, the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus basically calling believers to a higher plane than the Old Testament. He said, you have heard it has been said, but I say unto you. And he says that over and over and over again. And in verse 31 and 32, he now addresses marriage. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Two short verses. But obviously, he is, he is saying something has happened here that's different than what it used to be. And he uses this, this little clause, saving for the cause of fornication. Now, I'm not going to get into that right now because I'm going to say that for the next time. But this little clause has been the hang-up for many, 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 many people and the excuse that many have used for divorce and remarriage. And I want to visit that in depth uh, the next time. We're going to leave that for, for right now. But this is what Jesus said. And what we can take away from it is that his audience, obviously, when they heard what he had to say, uh, understood it as something different than what had been. Okay? Now let's turn to Matthew 19, where there's a similar 
Jesus says something similar, but there's more context here that uh, helps us to understand that. And we're going to start at verse 3 of Matthew 19. And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are, no, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So this, this was um, a little much for him. So they pr- pried a little bit more, and they said unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He said unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you. Now remember, they said, why did Moses command? He uses the word suffer. All right? In other words, Moses put up with it. He didn't command you. He kind of put up with it. He suffered you to put away your wives. from the be- But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is good not to marry. It is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs, which are so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs, which were made eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. So just a few comments here, just a few observations. Obviously, this was supposed to be a trick question. The Pharisees didn't come with, you know, we'd really like to hear your thoughts on this, Jesus. You know, please tell us. They were trying to trick him up, trip him up. Would this man contradict what Moses said? Is that what he would do? And if, and if he would, you know, they were ready to pounce. But what Jesus does instead is he goes way back to the beginning and he said, listen, from the beginning this was not so. Um, and, and we read this. God has joined these two together and man is not supposed to mess with it. And after all, it was because of the hardness of your hearts, which I'm sure was really flattering to the Pharisees, that... Um, Moses allowed this thing. And he clearly states it. Whoever puts away his wife marries another, commits adultery. Whoever marries the one put away commits adultery. Now, the, the, the most interesting part of this, is in, in my mind, is in verse um, 10, 11, and 12. This must have really hit the disciples sideways because they, um, they said, well, they went so far as to say, if this is how it really is, who wants to risk getting married? It'd be better off just not to get married, you know, because, boy, this is risky business. And um, Jesus says something that um, in verse 11 and at the end of verse 12 that I think is very interesting. He said, I'll tell you what, he said, not, every man, not everyone's going to be able to receive what I have to say. And he repeats that twice. And in my mind, what that tells me is there is going to be multitudes that feel just exactly like the disciples. 
this saying is too hard to receive. And they, they choose not to receive it. They can't receive it. But in verse 12 there, he also goes through this whole thing of, of the, the, the illustration of the eunuch. And what he says about being made eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, in my mind, it is at least an indication of where Jesus expects or how he expects us to understand that. In other words, there may be situations, as hard as it may be, where for the kingdom of heaven's sake, you may be called to celibacy through no fault of your own. But you have you choose to do that because of the kingdom of heaven and because of what Jesus is teaching here. So the question is, who are the people that can receive this? Do we just get a choice? Okay, I can receive it or I can't receive it. Yeah, it's just my choice. And I just happen to be a person who can't receive this. I'm going to suggest that if we go now back to the Sermon on the Mount, when he finished that all up, he gave this simple little parable of the wise and the foolish man. And you know that. And he said, the people that hear my words and they do them, that's a wise person. The people that hear the words and they don't do them, well, that's a foolish person. And not only that, you have a house that stands and you have a house that falls. I'm suggesting this morning that the people that are able to receive it are those few wise men that are interested in building their houses on rocks. And I'm also going to suggest this morning that this is one of the big, big rocks in the foundation of that house. And if we dare to mess with this rock, we're going to have foolish man houses on the shifting sand that are going to crack and crumble in the storms of life. These people that can receive it are the ones that are so fully committed to the word of God and their teachings that they're willing to make huge sacrifices to keep that stone and that in that house intact. We're going to we're going to we're going to read one more passage and then we're going to stop for this morning. Turn with me to Mark 10. Because the thing I find interesting in this, it's almost verbatim uh, to the Matthew 19 account, and yet there's a difference. And you're going to see it as we, um, as we read through here. Matthew 10, verse 2, And the Pharisees came to him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to put his, away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said, What did Moses command? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement to put her away. It's interesting they used a little different word there. Before they were saying he gave us a commandment. Now they're like, okay, he, he suffered us. He, he allowed us. Jesus answered and said unto him, For the hardness of your hearts he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And again, we have the whole house thing. And in the house, his disciples ask him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. A, a more succinct um, account of what probably is the same teaching in, in Ma- or the same account as Matthew 19. We're not sure of that. We're not sure if this is the same or a different or a different um, time, but it's very very similar. The thing I want to 
I want to point out here, and I'm sure you picked up on it, um, obviously there's no exception clause. Why didn't Jesus use the exception clause here like he did in Matthew? Is there any reason for that? Also consider that the disciples asked for further advice on this, and it seems like Jesus just was happy to give them a pretty succinct answer. Not much more than that. I would say that this is a very clear and unambiguous teaching on this matter. Very clearly understood, not very hard to, uh, to it'd be pretty hard to mix up. There's no way to bring this sermon to an easy close, or a good close. We're just going to crash land it right here, and we're going to pick up uh, with some more passages the next time when we come together. But thank you for your attention, and uh, I hope that you find this exercise uh, helpful in understanding why we feel the way we do on these things.